man, that was like, that was so far apart. Uh, you know, I, I would have thought that it was Democrats and Republicans clapping. <laughs> hey yo. All right, beep beep bitty beep beep bitty. Good morning, Rogan Nam. <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> it was a how, shout out. How long ago you prepared that one, or if it just happened? It was a. It was a shout out to my wife who told me to yell "Good morning, Vietnam." Aha. Uh-huh. And I. I modified you it. You put a spin on it. A little spin. Like little you're a spin. Democrat or a Republican. Yeah. What I will tell you I am is Ryan. Interesting. I'm Harland. <laughs> we're Doddlers. And we're here on the Doddlers Philosophy Podcast. So yeah, the um Oh yeah. We we return to you 2.1 listeners. Um and we uh we're here to talk and argue about stuff tonight. And that in particular I don't even know how to, what to call this in particular. But I guess the overarching umbrella term, you correct me, Harlan, but we're talking tonight about argumentation theory. Did you know that was a thing? No. Because that's, <laughs> that's actually a field of study and a disappointingly Sweet. few uh, of my community members seem to know about it. But yeah, it's not quite logic. It's not even informal logic. Or rhetoric, um, but there's just literally a discipline called argumentation theory, and mm. I'm interested in it because I'm in it. yeah. <laughs> Wait, because I'm glad you asked. No, <laughs> <laughs> because as we've talked about on previous episodes, there are epistemic concepts that most of my conspecifics appear to rely on that I don't have access to as a responsible skeptic. And as we've talked about on, you know, episode four, I don't think we ought to care about or pursue the truth so much. 
I guess that was in the three a little bit too, with the trimond, right? But if we don't have truth, and we try to be normative meta-epistemological skeptics and not make any strong assertions or claims to knowledge, but also don't want to be a uh, crystal necklace-wearing, Portland, Oregon-living... Uh, <laughs> Oh, you know, well, this is just my truth, and you have your truth, and everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Uh, if we want to avoid that, but also avoid, I know what's true, and fuck you, if you disagree with me, here's my nuclear button. What is in between? And for me, it is this, the, what fits that bill is argument. Sweet diggity. Now, why does argument fit that bill? And why aren't you, why is it that crystals don't appeal to you? Because I value agreement. Uh, And then, you know, why do that? It seems to me that collaboration on large-scale, even historical-scale projects to bring our environment more in line with our preferences seems better, seems preferable to me, to war and strife and stress and violence, all the things that follow from that can typically follow from disagreement and both of the extremes of the spectrum dogmatism and epistemic egalitarianism are enshrinements of disagreement if you have a doctrine that you accept and require everyone else who's relevant to you to accept also then there's not much those two, when they come into conflict, can do about that other than resort to non-semantic options like nose-punching or bomb-dropping. And if you go the other way, such that everyone gets to say whatever they want, then again, you're still going to rest in states of disagreement. It's just that For some reason, these people, perhaps out of a desire for comfort or a some sort of social norm of politeness or some sort of perhaps fear at defending their own beliefs, are willing to just countenance a radical egalitarianism of everyone is entitled to whatever they want. If so, it's highly likely that everyone will disagree about almost everything. The entire rest of the spectrum, from 1 to 99, I think, if we're going to avoid these extremes, is going to be seeking a dispute resolution mechanism. And it seems to me 
that we might as well take advantage of this wonderful gift that we've got of language sufficiently enhanced by the study of general semantics, among other things. And uh, mm-hmm. let's use that to resolve our disputes and mediate our collaboration around achieving our projects. Period. So, And then argument would be somewhat defined as the study and development of procedures to utilize language to resolve disputes, to minimize disagreements, maximize agreements. You know, as the sort of really broad sense, and that's why, that's the version that I would be defending or in favor of when I would say something like, uh, I really care about and like and value argument and think that that's what we ought to emphasize. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Got any thoughts? Um, I have thoughts. Uh, the first one is that this sounds like some type of skill you have to learn and acquire it doesn't sound like something you can just hear once and then execute um and i can see like a lot of these things that we've talked about um uh talking about truth talking about enemy skepticism uh talking about general semantics all of these things to a degree require work so how would you make a numbnuts like me you know feel better about what i'm gonna have to do to resolve disputes with other chimps i think that everybody argues right was that a children's book you had in your nightstand everybody does <laughs> yeah. these things you know yeah before or after pooping whatever everybody argues but there can be different degrees of sophistication and intentional behavior and rule governed behavior within it or it can just be whatever you've contingently received from your environment and in your chimpish manner extolled henceforth and that's one of the major differences in the study of argumentation theory many people come at it from a more descriptive or a more normative orientation some people Mm -hmm. they're more kind of empirical social scientists that are walking around and looking at actual human arguments for some reason or other you read a lot of articles and books of people taping in airports and then in detail (laughs) in excruciating detail reconstructing and analyzing these really what the normative people would say bad arguments where there's immense 
landscapes of missing premises and appeals to authority and you know it's most natural in the wild argumentation <laughs> that happens in America 2018 or America late 20th early 21st century argumentation theory it looks to me basically separated itself from philosophy and the rest of science to become its own thing and have its own name and its own literature around the 40s and 50s really taking off to the extent it took off at all 60s and 70s and up through today for some reason or other perhaps an indication of the high trait civility in this culture compared to maybe america the hub for this appears to be amsterdam Hmm. Wonder if there's a <laughs> correlation there. But so yeah, everybody argues. However, there can be argument itself. There can be a debate about how much we should attempt to institutionalize argument or debate and make it a stringent discourse norm following uh, you know, attempt at maximizing something or other. And one of the ways to do that, maybe the simplest way, is to just attempt it a lot and repeatedly and with the same people, which I think you and I have experienced over the years in our various get-togethers with interested members of the public or uh, the some of our select esoteric groups that we just kind of can figure out over time well, what has worked, what hasn't worked, what has been repeatedly frustrating, what appears to be more fruitful. Can we extract out from our own experience as a group some things that seem to work well? And if so, can we codify them, stress them, and attempt to abide by them in the future and just kind of have a continuously developing core of norms to use and that has worked well to my perception uh, yeah i mean i i hope um that we've all kind of in our experiences kind of the repeated ones i hope that that's worked out and that we've made improvements i worry sometimes that you know <clears throat> I still, myself, am kind of you know, focused on uh, a rhetoric, and I, I don't know how much a rhetoric, you know, you know, has a place in argumentation outside of, you know, it being sometimes the only thing one is using to get a point across, um, or even also to, you know, persuade another to um to appreciate the point and to uh, maybe if not adopt it at least respect it in a particular way and sometimes i worry that that's kind of what i do quite a bit is you know rhetoric um we can get into the details of argumentation theory so i won't jump the gun too early right now but there seem to be i mean you did mention premises a little bit ago in the 
you know, the, the criticism of those who practice argumentation theory or do the research in talking about how, you know, there's a lot of crappy premises or very few or whatever. And, you know, sometimes it's, um, I'm not providing personally, I'm just talking for myself, but, uh, I often feel like I'm not providing a lot of interlocked premises and, and there probably often is quite a bit of an appeal <laughs> to authority, you know, um, but it's only because it's like, well, it, it's like, well, I'm the only one in the room who can juggle. So everyone just has to say, well, okay, he can juggle those balls and I can't, but if I could, I could really, you know, we could get into it a little more, you know, there's, I, I, I feel like, I mean, and that hopefully is the place where we grow, but I hope that I am growing, you know, anyway, that's what I'll say. Yeah, you're growing older, if nothing else. <laughs> uh, Sorry, that, I don't know where that came from. That was like insecurity. Anyway. Before we go any further into the night, people will be mm. disappointed if I don't, uh, you know, throw out my prepared quote here. Um, I know, Jesus Christ, we're going on like almost 20 minutes now. Fuck. I wanted to share a passage from one of the, uh, he's a big name within argumentation theory, but hasn't, to my knowledge, made it out of there. But this person's name is Charles Willard, and he wrote a really impressive, to me, work called A Theory of Argumentation. But this is one kind of literary passage where I think he pretty much addresses what you were maybe kind of saying. We'll see. Anyway, and to me, in this, um, so, you know, this is being recorded and will be released onto the internet and be out there for who knows how long, so there won't be an orienting moment. But this podcast is being recorded in the midst of the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court debacle and so all of that to the extent that politicians attempt to emulate argument and have their version of debate and rhetoric happen uh, this passage to me also has some resonance with what's happening in the current news cycle Anyway, you ready? Quote! As we look at the world we really live in, it is sometimes hard to believe that decision-making and rational deliberation are anything more than the dated argot of a credulous age like heraldry and chivalry. The language of argument seems anachronistic, not merely passé like snuff-boxes and powdered wigs, but unfit and incompetent. Argumentation books seem to belong on the fantasy or gothic romance shelves. <laughs> if decision-making is little but post-facto rationalization, rationality, a whore's rouge for touching up institutional excrement, and debate mm. a legitimizing morality play for cloaking greed, corruption, and inertia in a mantle of respectability, in some, a cynical, empty, false consciousness made all the worse because we sustain it to fool ourselves, then things are beyond control. Alienation is the stance of prudence. 
when public rationales differ substantially and substantively from the pragmatic genesis of decisions, the public forum becomes an empty shell, a theatrical stage or a stylized ritual prized for its entertainment value, but empty and valueless except as fuel for cynics. A wish and a pinch of pixie dust won't make debate and critical thinking real possibilities in our world. End quote. Wow. That was a great quote. Yeah, I kind of liked it. And, you know, thinking of characters like Lindsey Graham and Chuck Grassley and uh, I'm hearing that. As, right. Yeah. <laughs> For sure, I feel like that we are also, to a degree, the cynics. Confirmed. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, that that guy knows how to write. Yeah, I thought he's pretty good. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so we've got that cynicism going on. And as someone who generally perceives things that way, I don't think there is much of what I would consider high-quality argumentation that happens in America 2018. But so much the worse for that. Who cares? We'll do our best anyway. Right. Sadly, but I guess it's just we're already a couple of lonely doddlers anyway. Oh bother. <laughs> so um let, let's talk briefly about a few of the considerations of some of the argumentation theorists before we get into a little bit more of what what we have done with it. One of the things that's a big deal in just kind of the structure of argument in general, I think, is the pro and con. Um, when they do competitive debate, etc., that is an enshrined uh, structural necessity that they do there's we have our resolution and we have someone who speaks in favor and someone who is opposed right when someone in the airport is making an argument as to why they shouldn't have to be the one who yet again takes the kid to the bathroom but instead should be allowed to sit <laughs> on their phone and watch the congressional testimony ooh they are ma- they the person who puts forth the request demand claim would be taking this pro role and then if anyone wanted to dispute that they would be in another role so is that are we willing to accept that as a structural necessity of arguments that there's always a pro opponent and opponent i kind of think so but i also hesitate to ever make necessity claims (laughs) <laughs> you're stuck you fucked yourself <laughs> um i i think uh i mean that's kind of a that's sort of a big question right at this stage of the episode <laughs> um i don't know if if um that's a place is that a road you want to go down really? <laughs> yeah we can just throw it out there and maybe and come back to it probably after yeah, we talk about the details. Yeah, and that's a fun one, too. And because one thing that would 
make that even more relevant is that if or to the extent we chopped things up that way, and if one of our concerns was making some discourse norms, would there be different rules that applied to the person who puts forth a claim and the person who right. disputes, etc. So that's one of the high-level things that we talk about in argumentation theory. Another is the work uh, from J.L. Austin through our buddy John Searle on what they call speech acts and the pragmatic aspects of communication, which in this case does not mean pragmatic in the American pragmatist James Dewey Peirce sense, but rather means the non-semantic aspects that accompany production of a text, like body language, assumptions of what people do and don't know, hmm. the force, are is the person making a joke, are they making a demand, are they making a request, what they call those different types of elocutionary or locutionary forces, etc. Whatever is not contained in the meaning of the words or the sentence, but rather environmental factors that contribute to the production of your argument. Or do we want to view the goings-on more like what they call the, the CRC model, the claims and accompanying reasoning uh, is it more like that we are attempting to access propositions, these abstract semantic entities that sentences attempt to refer to, and that we try to purify argumentation from these pragmatic factors, so that these are two, again, kind of large-scale lenses that different argumentation theorists look through, the extent to which they're concentrating on the entirety of the speech act and everything that comes with it, or if they're trying to be more sort of logical and abstract and just talk about the propositions, <laughs> Joe Friday. Just the props, man. That's pretty good. Okay. I, I, that's all interesting and and good for me but i i feel like i need just a little bit more is there more that you're you're heading towards sure uh, a related thing is an old timey word from our buddy from a while ago aristotle who talked about i may be pronouncing it wrong enthememes which has nothing <laughs> to do with richard dawkins but the enthemomatic character of arguments which, again, can be debated the extent to which it is necessary or ever-present or is only common to varying degrees. But the enthememes are arguments that have tacit premises. And I think that the way I look at things, there are always going to be an indefinitely vast number of enthymematic premises in any argument, especially to the degree that I care about things like definitions. Uh -huh. 
we will rarely, we will never define all the terms. You're going to rely on a connotation base, on a semantic groundwork, almost all the time. You're going to rely on common patterns of inference. You're not going to always spell out your logic explicitly. You're going to rely on, for example, another thing we either have or soon will talk about, all these ceteris paribus clauses. Well, yeah, the match will light when struck if the humidity is this and the prevalence of oxygen in the atmosphere is why. And, you know. So there's always, I think, accompanying an argument a potentially an indefinitely large enthymematic accompaniment that is potential grounds for clever disputants to attempt to make relevant at any time. That even if, so you can always, I don't know, if you want to phrase it this way, it's a way to weasel or something. All right, you don't have any problems with the explicit premises of your argument, but... (laughs) <laughs> you are trying to slip under the rug. You're trying to smuggle in this premise that you haven't stated but need in order to move from three to four, blah, blah, blah. So that's a big deal. To, And it helps to have labels for things in order to talk about them subsequently. So that's another thing we can learn from argumentation theory and watch for as we're okay. considering arguments. And then finally, just what's the point? What's the goal? Where is an argument headed? And there are... That's where, I suppose, our two bugbears from the beginning can come up. The egalitarian would say, well, if to the extent there's a purpose in arguing at all, it's maybe just for fun or to pass a philosophy class or to write some poetry in a strange way with numbers next <laughs> to the lines or, you know... Or, you know, the dogmatist, I don't think, sees much of a point. But anyway, a distinction that gets brought out in some of the argumentation theory literature is the difference between resolving or settling. And that that's a large and relevant pragmatic difference in the way humans behave and will change the way systems evolve subsequent to arguments. Have they merely ceased to, ended the debate. Well, they're kicking us out of the lecture hall. We've got to go. It just ends where it ends. Or we're going to agree to disagree. That would be what they call Mm. settling. For a resolution, the way I understand the terms, would entail a genuine agreement as to the local conditional status of the conclusion based on the argument. All right, well, I get it. If I accept these premises and those definitions and these rules of inference, then that conclusion appears to follow, and I'm going to adopt it with confidence level X for now until I hear a better one or do some further research, whatever. That any disputes that arise in the course of the argument are genuinely resolved. Okay. That's the kind of ending I like. 
Don't just settle. Let's not settle for settling. <laughs> not settle for settling. I think um, I think settling no one would like, uh, except for the person who's losing. <laughs> Who knows their 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 you know side of the of the the argument is not holding up or whatever. Um, but resolving, if you're looking for agreement, I think resol resolution is the is the goal. Uh, and then I kind of want to go over speech acts and propositions one more time, just. Because to me, you know, you've got resolve and settle, and I think I know where I would prefer, and I think most people would, well, that's not true, but, you know, resolve, resolutions would seem what you want. Whereas mm -hmm. uh, these, you know, court hearings or whatever that we've got with Kavanaugh and everybody, you know, they're probably just going to settle because, you know, majority wins or whatever. They're not actually going to sit there and try and work it out together it would probably take too much time or who knows but the thing is is the speech acts and propositions that was pretty interesting to me speech acts uh it, it sounded like you were pitting them like do you want one or the other am i correct mm, i don't know about one or the other i think that everyone will agree that Actual arguments take place in speech act terms. So another way to distinguish the two is speech acts are actual and propositions are virtual. Or speech acts exist and propositions don't. Speech acts are the events mm -hmm. that happen in space-time, in-world, whatever. Right. When I say... Premise one. <laughs> all men are mortal. That's a speech act. I may or may not in tokening that speech act, be successfully referencing a proposition which is a more abstract semantic object in a sort of platonic sense that some people believe in and some people don't. Okay. Or some people take the instrumentalist version towards and say, well, no, there aren't propositions, but it's still useful to talk as though there are for various purposes. Okay. Uh, and one of the standard things that usually comes up in discourses about propositions are alternate languages and the phrase say the same thing so <laughs> there are various wait can uh, i breathe, pragmatic can I quickly, behavioristic I, oh yeah okay i'm just I, I, when you say say the same thing you could say two languages get you know they they have like share a common abstraction or something like that. Like there's a an abstraction that the two then, you know, in the concretize you know concretization of their speech acts or something like that in different languages, they they all both kind of like go back like they're a lineage or something and they go back to a point where they're where they share something in common. Is that what that's trying to get at? I don't know about the going back to aspect. <laughs> I think it's contemporaneous. Right. But, but I was saying, like, there are various motivations to want to be able to say that an English speaker and a German speaker both think that snow is white or whatever. Pass Even the though butter. If you ask, 
you ask them to express it and one says snow is white and one says shine and vice or whatever the i don't know very languages but you make your favorite example pass the butter versus blah 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 in chinese uh-huh. that they functionally equivalent that we want to be able to talk about people as having some sort of shared doxastic framework so we that's the role that propositions play okay. whatever it is that is shared by Snow is White and Shine and Vice, they both mean, ah, the proposition that English speakers <laughs> token by saying Snow is White. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to kind of go back to that one. But you pretty much have in your, just to kind of quickly, because you've gone over a number of little things, but just some of the background, talked about descriptive versus normative talked about pro and con and asked if it was necessary but you're not sure if you you know because you don't include necessity necessarily in your (laughs) uh (laughs) sorry uh you don't include it period i don't know what you you don't include it in no joking um and then we got some speech acts and propositions some enthymemes and then we want to have resolution or we want to settle uh settling is you're getting kicked out of the bar you know res- resolutions are someone goes okay i agree my argument stinks or whatever mm-hmm. okay all right i just wanted to touch on that because that's you know just like we have in the prior episode some of the super basics yeah yeah which i to me they're brand new so i don't know how, you know what i mean to me it's like basics you know mm. <laughs> it's like you know you put me in like a fancy french kitchen or something and be like okay i want you to make a whatever you know whatever the french make and be like it's basic and i'd be like okay popovers anyway are those french whatever doesn't matter we're moving on unless you I feel know, like I you want to pop over to my neighbor's home. house sometimes jesus christ we're moving on <laughs> one of the problems is with trying to do a good job at anything, is that we're fucking chimps, right? We're these wild animals, domesticated animals that have a evolutionary heritage and all kinds of unwanted problems that, again, as we keep growing older, only seem to get worse. Oh, the hardening of the chimp. Yeah, some parts hardened. That could be that could yeah, maybe. that could be like weird. <laughs> so I take that back. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, put it on Twitter. But oh. we can also we can do some stuff. We can <laughs> get to the moon, right? Oh, just alienated more audience members. <laughs> we can. Build skyscrapers for other chimps to knock down later. And, you know, there's all this stuff we can do. It seems to me inductively reasonable to suggest that when we do cool stuff, when we accomplish big, impressive projects, other than perhaps taking over the world with our population explosion. <laughs> Uh, foreshadowing that reminds me of a future episode 
most of the time we're doing cool stuff, it's because we somehow attempt to transcend our chimpness through procedural development, a.k.a. science and engineering, maybe tiny parts of philosophy, sometimes. <laughs> but that we do it through idealization. If you want to get something done, then you need to abstract. You need to forget details. If you need to take into account all of the details, you will never get out of bed. Because there's too much information compared to our chimpy nervous systems. So we have to forget a bunch of it, and then we have to pretend that we're doing things that we know damn well we're not doing. There are no straight lines. There are no triangular objects. Alienated another audience member that I used to know. <laughs> mm. uh, but if we... there's a preemptive alienation process, I think you've, you've accomplished it. Yeah, now one of my old acquaintances will turn it off and rage. <laughs> anyway, but we strive through both, through kind of a back and forth process between material science and engineering and measurement to try to build straighter and straighter straight edges. A straight edge that appears straight enough at a date is later proven quite jagged when we increase our magnification abilities. And now this thing that we thought was straight it appears under this magnification as a very pointy mountain range. So now we've got to figure out how to flatten those out and try to make things straighter and straighter. It's all this process of bouncing back and forth between the actual messy animal chimp world and the idealized world of Olympus, where there really are such things as triangles and propositions and straightness and circles and uh, the realm of the gods. Nice. So... A way that I like to think about that pattern is that actually we are always chimps. That's where it starts. That we, it comes from the gritty, soft and hard and scratchy and bumpy and mixed up animal bodies. It's, all, it's very embodied. But then those. Dirty chimps can attempt to use language and symbolism to tell stories about what they think the realm of the gods might be like. And then by striving to pull the chimps upward by their Achilles heels, they don't have <laughs> bootstraps, right? Uh, that we can attempt to approximate that we can try to strap some wings on and be school play level angels, right? I mean, right. we still can't fly and they fall off and whatever, but <laughs> that we try to strap on some wings and by telling stories about the gods, we can try to make the chimps angels. 
I don't know if that little poem works for you or means anything to you, but I think that describes science. <laughs> I I love it. I don't know if it necessarily is um, only for science or, you know, scientific uh, endeavors. Um, but I, I just think that's a really nice um, sequence, if you will, of, you know, the, you know, we're always chimps. We can be sometimes angels. And, but we'll never be gods. You know, we'll never have straight lines. We'll never have perfect triangles. Um, yeah, and I like that a lot. Because we also don't need them. We won't have them, but yeah, it doesn't matter because your projects are influenced by your concerns and your concerns are localized to your place in history and your environment the body you're in etc so we don't we don't need to be gods but by playing at it sometimes we can do better than we would otherwise yeah for sure um we have speech acts but maybe we don't really have propositions is that also possible yep i mean in this to make that analogy here the chimp would be the speech act the god would be the proposition and then the angel would be i guess what they call the rational reconstruction of the argument by a trained theorist so you've got your two chimps arguing in the airport <laughs> and then you've got the abstract propositions that they're trying to play with or not and then you've got the scientist in the background with their notepad out <laughs> and their what do they call those pen pencil protectors or whatever and they're pulling that and they're writing down what these people are saying and then they go back to the lab and they reconstruct what they think was going on that's kind of the angel level so you're saying that angels are dorks big time <laughs> sweet it sounds better to say dorks are angels than angels are dorks. Oh, hmm. maybe A is not A. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is, people don't like this kind of thing, but I it works for me. That all right, if A is A and you say angels are dorks, then dorks are angels and they're the same. But then consider the difference between those two. You know the pragmatic speech act level difference of the phrase. Dorks are angels, to angels are dorks, and they're very <laughs> different things. That's true. That's kind of funny. Uh, but that's because we, you know, in our enthymemic way, are smuggling in some things about angels that we use in one, uh, uh, you know, uh, permutation of it that we don't use in the other. Right. I, a phrase that I like for this kind of thing is connotative pollution. Excellent. That we have, yes. since we have good connotations for the term angel and negative connotations with the term dork, it's an entirely different act in the speech act sense, in the what force does your locution 
have. Because one would be an insult and one would be a compliment. Isn't that funny? Though <laughs> all you're really doing on a logical level is asserting an identity. If one is the other, then they both is themselves. And you know. Right, right. Fucking dorks. And angels. Anyway, we're, we're, we're referencing the general semantics episode. What was that? Seven, eight? Where where we argued, I, you know, honestly, Korzybski that A was not a problem. I, I'm like, I'm the same feeling. I'm like, uh, eight. I don't know. I oh, shit. I don't remember. Here we are making these things. We don't even know what we're well, doing. What am I did? Anyway, so <laughs> that's how I would also like to look at argument. That argument would be one of these godlike idealizations. And the practice of attempting to develop a procedure that most reliably led to chimp-level agreements might be so that the god-level thing would be the discourse norms, and then the actual conversation is the chimp-level. And then if, over time, your tribe, your troop could get better and better at engaging in types of discourse that led to agreement, which then facilitated them to collaborate on their projects, then they're strapping their wings on. So the, the best kind of strap on. Oh my God. <laughs> We're going to have to be explicit. We're going to be labeled explicit now. Fuck. We were so clean until that one. <laughs> well, you got to. I don't know. It's tur. It's like, uh, Tourette's. This is a family show. <laughs> yeah, this is a family show. I, I wouldn't let my family listen to this, although they do. Hi, mom. I make my family listen to it. Nice. Do you? I sit them all down at gunpoint in the living room and crank it up. You do have guns. I believe you. Um, yeah. Shout out to the moms and dads out there. Hide your Are you making this political again? Hide your guns. Well, you, uh, I hope not. Continue, sir. Uh, all right, where am I? Oh. All right, so that's what... I don't... Okay, one thing I want to do... One of the hardest things in my lifelong project of attempting to develop a scheme, a philosophy, yes. is to get people to join me at this point. At the point of, okay, we are skeptics. We've abandoned the truth. God damn it. What are we going to do? Because we got stuff to do, and now there's nobody up in the sky telling us where to go. And we are at sea. We are lost. Are we going to train? And I, I want them to get on the argument train. Oh, oh. <laughs> But since I'm already on the train, I'm kind of like, well, I don't know. That's what I got. I got a train. So how do you, through using train technologies, convince everybody else to get on the train? You know, how do you use, how do you argue people into respecting arguments. And I think that's a 
good puzzle that I have not yet solved. Well, what's um before you get into your next move? <laughs> I love that you talked about the train as a train, but prior to that, I was joking about the Korjipski thing where we would go and train from the. Uh, it was two episodes ago. Ah, yeah, training. So you were, you know, talking about you want people to join you, and I'm like, to train. Anyway, you were like, yes, we'll get on the train. And I was like, okay. (laughs) Um, This is another inefficiency, I would call it a flaw, of English. Yeah. Homophones, homonyms, what are these things? You know, bank and whatever. They got this, you use the same word, but it has drastically different meanings. Dumb. Those are really dumb. And we should get rid of them i i think isn't that one of the troubles of learning english if it's not your well fuck it's probably the troubles of learning english if it's your first language probably like well, that doesn't make any sense i mean i know like i have a six-year-old who's learning you know how to read words and things like that and and at times i find myself in that pickle where i'm just like uh shit that where i'm i would I, you know i have to sit there and be like well it means this and this instance and this other instance it's spelled differently and it means this and, you know sometimes it's not spelled differently it sucks fucking idiots why did we do this laziness inertia yeah christ conservatism conservatism nice goddamn conservatives it's wrong everywhere even when it's not in the Congressional chamber. What do they call these fucking things? I don't know, but they, I'm sure there's a fucking name for it. God damn it. Let's just get all the swears out of the way right now. Oh, we'd run out of time before I was done. <laughs> I've listened to Brett Kavanaugh talk all day yesterday. I got enough swear words. I like beer. All right. Jesus. It's too. We're being too current eventy. We're not. What kind of beer? What are you blackout on, Amy <laughs> Klobuchar? How dare you ask me? What are you? Oh, your dad was an alcoholic, and this is touchy. Oh man! All right. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I believe you. Uh, fucking. This is not that kind of show. It's just not. So let's. We be don't careful. care. We are apolitical. Let's. Let's just be careful. That's all I ask. Because I... I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, I guess it's not that kind of show. Ooh, but we are chimps, so we we are we can't say that we're apolitical. As chimps. I can. As chimps. All the time, as you say. Uh, Christ. You know? We hear a certain vocalization out there. We go, oh! That's my brother. I have to go kill some other chimps. Anyway. So, okay, let's just... So, I, I want other people to care about argument also. And I don't know how to do that, really. But one of the premises that I have access to, because it was said and not disputed earlier, but you can now if you need to, mm. is that everybody argues already. So maybe you can bring most people onto the train by saying, well, you've 
been on trains since you were a baby. You know trains. You like trains. You just weren't on this great fancy new one I've got. You got to check out my train. Wait. Because. Yeah. Yeah. And before you do, because. I I have to throw a wrench in this whole thing. Finally. What is an argument? If people, if everyone argues and they've just been on some shitty trains and you got a nice one, then if we have, we're talking about trains, then, you know, going from there to argument, what is an argument? You know, what's a shitty argument? What's a shiny new argument? Who cares about those actual things? What is an argument? Do you have a definition or is that a nice little wrench that I've thrown in? I've got too many definitions. I just need one. But I don't have any of them pulled up. <laughs> we'll call, all right, well, while you're pulling it up. So here's here's Willard's definition. Oh, okay. Well, no, if you got, got if you got one, let's do this, baby. Earlier Willard was being flights of fancy, but in in his definition of argument, he is concise. Wait, I knew he was a good writer. Arguments are conversations in which opposition is present, period. Ooh. (laughs) I like that. So he has a very, very expansive one. Because he just stresses that he's one of the descriptivists, pretty much. Okay. He's interested in what people are doing. Mm -hmm. For him, argument is a form of communication. And then... the subtype of communication atoms that count as arguments are those which have opposition. Cool. I like it. There are things I like about it, but ultimately I don't like it. That's too broad. It doesn't get us anywhere, I don't think. I don't know what to do with that. Well, I mean, it sounds to me like it's one of those kind of flavors, you know? Here's two chimps communicating you know sometimes it has this flavor sometimes it has that flavor one of the flavors is argument that's how i see what he's trying to say now of course i've not read any of his stuff and this willard dude is new to me although i like him very much already (laughs) um he's got a likable face you're a fucking normative guy so if he's descriptive you're going to be like that's not satisfying enough for my normative tastes but i would say that to me that sounds very very much a particular flavor of conversation and the ingredient is opposition you know Mm -hmm. and that that's what it sounds like to me now but enlighten me further as to why you know you're not like screaming at it but you would prefer something else like what is it what is it just just go uh my preferred definition for argument is objective in the sense that it's for me arguments the way i use the term are objects and for willard they were more like events they were conversations happening amongst people at a place and time and it's this extended thing and it has only one character one necessary characteristic of opposition being present 
my definition of argument is that they are complex linguistic objects made of premises and conclusions whose purpose is to persuade. So mine's a teleological objective definition that it's about these premise-conclusion sets that are designed to be marshaled in Willard-style arguments, in conversations. For the proponent, the claimant, the person who wants to positively put something forth, this would be that which he uses, he or she uses, to attempt to persuade an audience of one or more other chimps to agree with the claim. He or she? How binary centrist of you. Um, God damn it, it's too, it's, yeah, <laughs> right. So, okay, um, complex linguistic objects whose purpose is to persuade. Um, and you mention premises and conclusions. Are those necessary? Or is it just, you know, it can be rhetoric, it can be whatever the linguistic object is, its purpose is to persuade. It's, it's like you said, tele teleological. I find them criterial. The way that I use language, I think we should restrict the term argument to be relatively narrow and to only apply to these premise-conclusion set thingies. So that I realize that my definition, that proposed definition, is much more restrictive than common English usage and much more restrictive than most um, academic usage as well. But I still like it. No, I, and that's fine. But to go to the train analogy or whatever, you know, you were talking earlier about like shiny trains versus shoddy trains or whatever. And, um, you know, is a train a train or is it not? You know what I'm saying? So Willard, I think, I think is more in the spirit of it being, you know, like the train. You know, and even though you're talking about events and objects and maybe we w might want to think about trains as objects or something like that. Um, it seems more like he's getting to the underlying pieces, criteria, whatever. And that, you know, it's a conversation whose opposition, you know, where opposition is present. And so there's that kind of train and then there's these other kinds of trains and some of these um, conversations where opposition is present might have highly detailed premises and conclusions and other ones might not might uh, some might be um, arguments from ignorance or you know how they kind of uh, arguments for an, from analogy arguments from you know they have all these various different ways that they talk about kinds of arguments but at the base they are conversations where opposition is present so you know, complex linguistic objects whose purpose it is to persuade, I think also can be like that. But if premises and conclusions are criterial, as you said, then I then I worry that, that we start to move away from just 
dispute and more it's much more structured and organized you know and it is much more specialized maybe that's the other way what do you think about that i agree it's more specialized okay when i'm going about defining terms one of the things that i sometimes do though it's very fallible and just a a broad heuristic but it's just to think of particular turns of phrase not turns of phrase particular I call them conceptual holes things that I want to say and then I think well does my definition allow me to say what I want to say while restricting so the right domain of inappropriate usage to me I want to be able to say I sat alone in the woods and wrote an argument. Here it is. I can now present it to you. Here is my argument. I wrote it in the woods alone earlier today. I want to be able to say that. If you strictly use the Willard definition, you would not be. That would be inappropriate. And then I think if you if you do the Willard style, then you also countenance things that I don't. You let in too much. You've got the two drunks at the bar incoherently shouting at one another, clearly in opposition, but neither one makes an argument. One says, Toby Keith is the greatest musician ever. And the other one says, he's a hack. You know, there's no arguments made there. You have two opposing views. The views are being expressed with passion. Neither side is making an argument. I thought it was taste great, less filling. Maybe that's what I think of Willard's definition. Well, there's a maybe it tastes great to you, but it doesn't work. <laughs> it's less filling to me. There was a, uh, there was a, <laughs> sorry, but when I lived in Maine, there was a commercial for this outfit called Hammond Lumber, and there would be two guys, and one would say, "Hammond cheese," and the other would say, "Hammond eggs," and they would yell at each other back and forth like. Ham and cheese, ham and eggs. And eventually, I think the guy who owned the place was like, he'd kind of part them and he'd just be like, ham and lumba. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> what? Oh, is that the name of Oh, I think I even missed the first part. It sounds like a local TV ad for a place called Hammond Lumber. Yes, is that exactly. what you said? Yes. Yeah, yes. okay. Ham and cheese, ham and eggs. Ham and lumba. Ham and lumba. Nice. Local <laughs> color. Anyway, but, uh, Okay, so you want to be able to say like yeah, I so have I'm this saying thing. Yeah, that's opposition, but right, that's not an argument. Just yelling ham and cheese. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Sorry, I haven't uh, enjoyed a silliness that much in a while. Um, and I have two young children, so okay, I, I, I don't, I don't object to your need for objects um okay so i i I don't have i I like where you're going with this what i am still trying to get at though is then you know a train's not a train 
right? You know, it's, it's, you know, or whatever it is to have, you know, gears and wheels running on a track or whatever. However, it's powered, you know, that is the definition of train or whatever the fuck. Definition of argument is um, not just simply a complex linguistic object, though, right? There's the criteria, it sounds like. You want to, you said you want to sit alone in the woods and write an argument and then be able to just literally hand it in and more or less as someone digests what's being, what they're reading, does that, I guess really what I'm trying to get at is, does that necessarily mean that you've written premises and conclusions and every time anyone does anything that you would call an argument, there will be premises and conclusions? The second part, yes, that's what I'm pushing or that's how I do it. I don't, And I was acknowledging earlier that I don't think that's how most people do it. Uh, for example... I'm thinking of standardized testing often, right? Like uh, ACT, SAT, whatever, GRE type tests will have the, in part of the language section of the tech test, they'll have a little short text that you will read and then they will ask you, ask you what arguments was the author making here? And obviously there are no numbered premises and conclusions in there. So... This restricted version that I'm putting forth is narrower than common English usage of America 2018, but I think that's a good thing. I don't care. I kind of feel like for Willard, you'd be Crocodile Dundee saying, that's not a knife. This is a knife, you know? And for you, you're saying like, that's not a fork or whatever. This <laughs> is a fork. You have a knife. I have a fork. You know, like that's the kind of thing. And you stop saying that's a fork. It's a knife. You know, or something along those lines. Is that, would you agree with that assessment of the two definitions and the approaches that are being put forth or whatever taken? Yes, asterisk. <laughs> Referred to asterisk at bottom of page. <laughs> As a general semanticist, I don't claim that anything is or isn't an argument. These are just terms that we invent and we can choose to apply however we want. No either linguistic object or event in the world really is or isn't an argument. That's not how it works. But we just get to, as normative semanticists, get to choose what we are going to use as our definition. Then we can hold that definition up to something and see whether or not it meets the criteria. That's all that's happening. But otherwise, yeah. That's not a knife, is what I'm doing. I thank the offspring of Data and Spock for that delicious asterisk footnote um okay but um so and i don't know if we spent too much time on definition of argument but it's not in your shit yet so now it is and i like that we've gone here i'm sorry I'm not Me too. sorry All uh, well. anyway <laughs> then would you be willing to change your definition or do you think complex linguistic object is enough, whether it has premises or conclusions or not? I am not willing to change it. Dogma. No. <laughs> I still think the premises conclusion thing is important. But another thing that I think, as an 
I don't even know a term for this. I don't know if it's a position right now in our intellectual community. Someone who is an argument file and uh, an argument fetishist, an argument lover, and who thinks that this is how we ought to adjudicate all disputes or potential disputes. I think that one can argue about definitions, about what we are going to choose to use as the paraphrastic expansion of our singular terms, so that there might be an argument to be made about what the definition of argument ought to be. So I would argue, to use the verb form, see, but we're doing a little bit of, you know, even that phrase is a little, I know what just happened. But anyway, I would argue that this is the definition of argument that we ought to use. There's another ought. I'm going to have this meeting. Piece of shit. Anyway, go. But yeah, I want I want to use this one, and this is what I'm going to use for the rest of at least tonight. <laughs> Though it's, of course, it's all up for debate. Ultimately. <laughs> Because, I mean, and so the quick pseudo version, which is not a Harland type argument for this, would ju- the gist of it just is that premise conclusion form is very efficient to facilitate disputes. And so we maybe can come back to this at the very, at the last step when we talk about disputational behavior in general. Mm-hmm. So let me just throw at you my the most current formulation of what I call the argument argument, the set of premises and conclusions whose purpose is to persuade you or anyone else that they should engage in, rely on, utilize arguments more. Okay. Premise one. <laughs> Reliable concordances are engineerable. What does that mean? Concordance uh, definitionary style definition means being of one mind. The Harlan style definition is Realizing the same outputs when given the same inputs. The short version is just agreement. And then engineerable is like, well, we can, they can be made and improved upon in the sense I was talking about earlier with straight edges. And we can engage in these ping pongy processes of perfection over time. And the chimps can tell stories about the gods and whatever. So, that's the first premise. Reliable concordances are engineerable. Second premise, agreement facilitates progress. Talked a little bit about that earlier. All I really mean by that is, I mean, the way that I like to say it, the sub-argument for that is, two chimps together can lift a rock that one chimp cannot. You know, just that, if they can agree 
to utilize their energy in a collaborative way. They can achieve projects that neither alone, without technological improvement, could achieve. <laughs> Premise three, argument is the most efficient manner for resolving disputes. The enthymematic <laughs> surrounding mist between those two premises that I will make explicit for now is the, agreement and disputes are kind of the two the two sides of the coin. If there's a dispute, there's not agreement, and if you agree, there's no dispute. So that if we accept premise two that we that agreement facilitates progress and enthymematically again that we value progress, then we want to resolve disputes. So that's kind of the little two A between two and three. It. And also exemplifies what that new vocab term means for you. Yeah. So yeah, three was uh, argument is the the most efficient manner for resolving disputes. And already, so now I notice as I'm saying it that that's kind of an equivocation because now I've shifted to argument being an event. You know, <laughs> so what that should say is something like a process of disputation arranged around the exchange of arguments if I wanted to make sure to stick to argument meaning the objects. Not that anyone else is tracking that verbally right now, but I realized <laughs> as I'm saying it that that premise equivocates. Hopefully it is fixed. Conclusion! Therefore, to the extent that we value making progress, we ought to attend to engineering and abiding by some set of discourse norms for the construction and exchange of arguments. Mm. Harlan-style arguments work better in text than in podcast form because it's nice to be able to reference the text back because to really be specific and stick to precise formulations. But I, you know, it came at you anyway. Arguments? Might there be another? Is there a meme here? <laughs> yeah, all right. So sometimes I call them arguments. So what? What you going to do about it? Nothing. Continue. Comments. No, that was the conclusion. Oh. Jesus. Well, all right. Were you were you writing it all down? No. So, did anything get stimulated in your chimp here? Has anything here stimulated my chimp? Well, whatever. Do you have anything to say about the argument argument? Well, thank God there's editing, because you've been breaking up a little bit. <laughs> um, ah. <clears throat> do you mind repeating yourself, the last thing you said? Well, so you, well, I don't know what you heard and didn't hear. The argument argument without extrapolation no i heard was, that you 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 just you the don't last want, thing you, you don't want it okay oh i'm just saying well you know do, so i ran through that what go wherever you want to go now like do you have anything to say about it 
about the argument argument. Um, yeah. And this is, would you say you define the argument argument as a process of disputation arranged around argumentative events? Is that fair? Mm, maybe. Yeah, that might be close enough. I mean, the conclusion, again, you know, it's normative. It's got a big fat odd in it, like you always love, and I keep doing it to you. Uh, <laughs> the point of this, again, in general, was to attempt to persuade audiences to value and engage in the exchange of arguments whenever they're whenever they need to collaborate to achieve projects which i think is often they should start constructing and exchanging arguments as a way to reach agreements and get together to do shit well i i want something i like i prefer i want something in between like, okay, this word argument's getting thrown around. We've worked with a few defini definitions. We've launched into the argument argument. Um, <clears throat> and I need to be able to set aside some of the baggage to say, okay, well, this other thing is now not what we're going to talk about as uh, an argument. And it complicates things a little bit by talking about events versus objects in my opinion um but or so i want to be able to say okay well is willard talking about dispute and not argument you know what i mean like can we set his definition aside as dispute and then be able to improve your definition of argument to include you know, more of the structure that I think you are leaning towards so that then we can say, yeah, the only time you're actually arguing, you're not asserting, you're not disputing, you're not whatever, is when you include premises and conclusions in a particular pattern um, that is somewhat internally consistent enough and we can kind of resolve uh, the disputes that way. Did any of that make yeah, sense? Yeah, I like. I think so, and okay. I like it. If it, if I'm getting it right, that I might advocate calling Willard's definition any conversation that includes opposition. Maybe I'd want to call that just a dispute, and then my claim is the claim of the argument. Argument is using arguments is the best way to resolve disputes. Right. Okay. Yep. So long as we have that, I'm that I'm fine. I'm like, okay, sure. So we're going to we're going to bring argument to a higher level than just mere like meh, 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 ham and cheese, ham and eggs, ham and lumber. Yeah, then one of them says to the other, "All right. So let's take this step by step." 
let's treat you as the proponent in this dispute. And you, what's your claim? Ham and eggs. Okay, <laughs> that now becomes your claim. I currently, I don't, so you make the claim, I don't immediately buy it, because I think ham and cheese. So now we have a dispute, because I don't buy your claim. So then, what I do is say, all right, what's your argument? Give me your argument for ham and eggs. Why should I also, why should I agree ham and eggs? And then it's the ham and eggs guy's job to make and present a set of premises that has the conclusion, ham and eggs. The claim becomes the conclusion that needs to be derived, and the argument is the motivation or reasoning that we should agree. Oh, yeah, all right, ham and eggs. I get it. <laughs> I This has immediately risen to the top of the list of my favorite things we've done. <laughs> Fucking beautiful. Yes, Ireland. And then those two go at it for a while, and they think that they have reached a resolution, and it happens to be ham and cheese, because ham and eggs, what the fuck, no. (laughs) they They resolve on ham and cheese. But then this ignorant yokel with an accent comes in, and goes ham and lumba, and (laughs) now we've got a new dispute, and those people need, now all three, they have to resolve that. Right, right. Hopefully without the one defecting back to ham and eggs. Oh, that would be a disaster. (laughs) We can't fracture apart because, and they can't, in my opinion. Ooh. And, you know, this is one of my personal favorite of my inflammatory claims because I get so much pushback on it and I'm not even really sure why yet other than the conservatism of loving cliches. <laughs> and we're probably not going to be able to go into the whole thing right here because I could say it and then you can say, what's your argument? Because this might even deserve a whole show, whatever. But claim! Reasonable people cannot disagree. Nice. Fucking explosions. Um I I I know other people have big issues with that and originally I was apathetic and then I feel like in the past you've laid out your reasoning. <laughs> um for why you make that claim, which I guess maybe becomes an argument at some point, but uh, I I don't have an issue with that, you know. Um, you just have to define what reasonable people are. Yeah, I, the, it all becomes wrapped up into the definitional framework, web, whatever. Because then I get to have a definition a pretty clear and easy definition for reasonable if you accept my other definitions because reasonable just means sensitive to arguments so that if the agents 
that are engaging right. in disputational discourse are all mutually doxologically sensitive to the to these complex linguistic arguments whose purpose is to persuade and they talk long enough and they okay so this will be a place where i can fill in a little bit more about some of the characteristics that i think if we accept the argument argument and we become arguers as our disputation resolution method what are some of the core concepts that most or all arguments probably should include in order to be effective persuaders and the major ones on the tip of my tongue are what are your definitions what are your what's your logic what are your rules of inference what are you allowed to derive from what mhm and i feel like there was supposed to be a third one <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you recall <laughs> this part I didn't have written cool. down genius no I don't recall so That's I want to know what your though. terms mean and I want to know what you're doing and, and you know what's your argument whatever uh, so but if you're it seems to me the two people who are both sensitive to argument should be able to to employ a computer analogy run the same program get the same inputs into the parameters of the program and get the same outputs. To me, that claim is not more contentious than the claim pocket calculators are reliable adders. Mm -hmm. We've made these systems that they are the way they are because they concord a lot. When you push 2 and plus and 2 on two different calculators, most of the time you will see on their screens isomorphic symbols. Mm -hmm. That's To me, that's what reasonable people can't disagree. At the end of a communication process, after exchanging all of their arguments, if everybody knows what all of the words included mean and what the rules of inference are, they should reach a conditional agreement at the end to, if I accept A, B, C, D, uh, then, yeah, I guess the answer's four. Like you said. Yeah. It's always open in the process, in the procedure, for them to then go back and dispute any piece of it. If your argument were accepted at face value, I would agree with the conclusion, but I dispute premise two because it's bullshit. Or I think your definition for argument is poor and I don't accept it. I prefer this one. And then they argue about that. Or they dispute about that. See, even I fucked this up. <laughs> no, but uh. that, and we just dis, dis, distinguished it today or whatever. Anyway, dis, dis, dis. that's my uh, my contribution to this conversation. So the one thing that stands out to me is that when you say reasonable people can't disagree, where people tend to go, like kind of automatically, is that's God's territory, you know, to fall to fit this into the chimps, angels, gods, yep, um, framework. And I think that's kind of where you're saying, no, 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 it doesn't, you know, this is just, you know. 
This is just schoolyard angels or whatever the you were talking about. With the, you know, pocket calculators or whatever. You know, you put two plus two, you get four. You know, it's just it's inputs and outputs, and that's the idea. Taking that a little bit further, um, I do think that it's sort of like uh hold on. Um I do think that it's sort of a uh bit of a callback, I guess. Um shit, I lost it. Hold on. I got distracted by something. Um Oh shoot. I'm gonna lob another thing at your head while you're trying to figure it out then, because dead air is not acceptable. I got another meme to throw out. The way I phrase this thing is between provocative formulations and defensible formulations. Reasonable people can't disagree is a provocative formulation. I wouldn't defend it as stands. I realize that it is flawed in many ways. The reason it takes that form is that it's emulating one of the tropes, you know. Well, you know, reasonable people can disagree is a way that people settle often. We don't like settling. I don't I don't accept it. Uh-huh. Uh so then I just phrase it as reasonable people can't disagree so I can get everybody's chimp up and you know, get things moving. But reasonable people is a chimp level concept and the idealized version, the god level concept and that which would play the sentential role in the defensible formulation would be something like rational agents. Right. I'm willing to accept that no people, no actual people, no domestic chimps ever really are rational agents completely. That's a God-level thing. So that the defensible formulation would be something like At the end of a successful communication procedure, rational agents will always reach concordant judgments. Or something wordy and whatever, complicated like that. That, So then, if we accept that on the God level, then the chimps, it seems to me, ought to strive to reach agreements. If they think that ideally rational agents would agree, then it seems like they would want to strive to agree. So, I've had a little bit of a... I won't say it's a breakthrough, but I have a thought. When you provoke, and people uh, kind of... um, in, in, In the right way, it sounds almost now, go into the God level of this, you know, chimps, angels, gods framework. I don't know. We got to shorten that up to like the CAG framework or CAG or whatever you want to call it. Um, GAC. It, <laughs> I know, Jesus Christ. The, um, it's the same thing with the, with truth business. It's the same thing with enemy skepticism. It's the same thing with general semantics. It is the same thing with this. People go, well, that's the realm of the gods. I am but a lowly chimp. 
Impossible. I, you know, you're asking me to do a lot of work. But I want to be a chimp and pretend in my head. I want to, I want to think I can be an angel, you know? But people don't reserve themselves the capacity to be gods. And so, if anything, people operate as if it is just chimps and angels. And that really, somewhere deep down, when you push them, when you provoke them, they go, I can't be an angel, let alone a god. I just pretend. I just went on by myself. I pretend like Ralphie in a Christmas story or whatever. Where, you know, everybody's like, Ralphie, you're so great. And he has these, um, you know, big dreams or whatever that are completely ridiculous. The, the dreams of a child, you know, they have no basis in, you know, what they actually uh, encounter day to day. That's kind of what it seems like. You're asking people to do a lot. They need training. Get on the train or get out of the way. I don't care if they don't do it, but if they don't do it, then shut the fuck up and listen to those of us who do. You're making me get political again. <laughs> I realize that most chimps are lazy, and I'm lazy about most things. I'd like to think that I'm not lazy in epistemology. So it, it doesn't really bother me if most people don't want to do this, but if you don't want to put in the work to construct and exchange arguments, then you should just buy tickets to the flight and not be an engineer. We do it everywhere else. People are totally comfortable taking their car into the mechanic because that is an expert and they have not spent the time and done the work to master combustion engines, but someone else has. So, I will, when I have a combustion engine problem, take it to the mechanic, give them a little bit of medium of exchange, and accept their expertise. People seem, in America 2018, to be hesitant to consult the experts in philosophy though you know so <laughs> i have sympathy for that and so am i because most of them suck but so are you saying it's the principle of the thing <laughs> are you saying that these passengers should just appeal to an authority and say ah eh, you know argumentation is not my thing. These people have sat there with premises and conclusions and they have, you know, come to this agreement, follow it. Yeah. Same thing with these people have spent all this time learning how to work with car engines, let them fix it, trust when you get back in the car, it's going to be better than it was when you brought it in. Yep. Interesting. I think that's a, that's a fascinating thing to, to uh, I mean, that would, that would, uh, 
that would raise it to the level that we raise everything else, like lawyers, doctors, whatever. Self-serving much? Philosopher? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, like... I Can yeah. you tell a story that elevates you from uh, a podcast host to wh whom no one listens <laughs> into being a doctor or a lawyer and finally your father will respect you? Nice. I'm aware of, this, of the psychological irony or whatever, but that has nothing to do with it. It's not an argument, and it's still <laughs> wrong. I like it. We we should have, yeah. We need to revert to the uh, talking like Bill Bill Maher. Okay. So shut the fuck up. Okay. Okay. New rule. <laughs> New rule. If you don't know how to argue... Get the fuck out. <laughs> and listen to me. Yeah. That's it, basically. Well, okay, I, I'm, I mean, I, I am not dissatisfied. So uh, where, where else do we go from here? Well, I don't know. Um, disputes, as we've mentioned on previous episodes, fill airtime more than agreements. So we go through to argument, argument, and we say, all right, I guess arguments are, they're okay. They might have a use, might make some sense some of the time. And we go through a little bit about what makes for a persuasive argument or a, an argument that often will tend towards resolution rather than further dispute or settling, such as working on definitions. We could, I suppose, attempt to extend out this core set of discourse norms that we think do well to work toward dispute resolution. Okay. Or, or, or you could just come up with an argument and we could try and work it out. I mean, you've, you've laid out a number of premises and conclusions for arguments. I, I get that. Um. So maybe we could lay it out again, and I can see if I can, uh, you know, like the argument argument, for instance. Or something else, it doesn't matter. Or do what you want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really want to go back to that one. We already kind of did it twice, just to save boredom and repetition on people. And I didn't bring with me at this moment other explicit arguments uh, if you want to hear some more nice. check out episode six i think there were a bunch of them presented at that one. Oh yeah about the, the skepticism one had a bunch of arguments and you know there will be more in the future yep <laughs> indeed i mean we can or we could close I yeah know. i mean uh, we can close I, I think, I mean, so I don't, I'm not, it doesn't have to be two hours. I mean, it's so far I've got an hour and 45 more, more or less. So I don't know. I mean, I'm, I think, I think, I think we accomplished a lot, to be honest with you. Stop, you stop wrapping up. I have it. We're back on. Oh, shit. Go. I'm not going to break this two hour thing. The rule was no new ideas after two hours. That's right. And I'm making this be two hours. All right. Here's something Go. related 
but we haven't touched on yet, that they call the burden of proof. Sweet! Maybe we can disagree about the burden of proof. Let's try. So this, to me, we can kind of go back to the whole pro and con thing or the whole general structure of disputational conversations. That, or to the extent that we're going to accept that they start with a proponent that's going to make some kind of claim. My version, my preferred account of burden of proof, again, is a simple one. If you accept my other definitions, not all of which are simple, but if you do, then I just, burden of proof comes easy because I just get to say, the burden of proof is always on the proponent, period, done, easy. Anyone who wants to make a positive claim has the burden to argue for that claim. In other words, every audience can always say, what's your argument? Every time a claim is made. And the person who makes the claim has the burden. Not everyone agrees with that. I don't know. We'll find out if Ryan does or not. (laughs) One of the common alternatives is, the burden of proof falls on anyone who makes an extraordinary claim. If you do it that way, then there would be certain claims that are made that would not have a burden. And if someone demanded an argument, then the claimant would say, I don't need to argue for this because it's already status quo. And if you want to dispute it, then it's your burden to dispute it. If I want to just say, this is a beer bottle. (laughs) then you're the one who has the burden to prove to me that it's not. Because there's a prejudice in favor of whatever the status quo is. Yeah. I don't know if that's the most common other one. That's the one that I run into the most as the two choices for burden of proof. You got a preference or a third one? No, but I've thought of something, and I don't know if it's bullshit or not. The claimant, let's let's break it up into you have got a claimant and a disputant or something, let's just say. Yep. The claimant has the burden of proof, and the disputant has the burden of disproof. <laughs> I don't know, I think. Let's do it. Um... If you object to something, if you are disputing a particular, let's say we've got some real arguers here and they've got premises and conclusions and shit. If you have a problem with the premise, you can't just say, I got a problem with that premise. Or, you know, uh, I don't believe that claim. Well, why? What's, what's the disproof? Where Because everybody's got baggage that they come with. So if you're saying, I don't believe that claim, if no one's laid out even an argument for it, you can say, sure, hey, lay out your argument. That's fine. But I don't see that as necessarily the burden of proof weighing heavy on the the claimant. I see it when it becomes the, you know, if one was to be able to say, what is it about the claim? 
reasonable people can't disagree. Uh, if someone were to say, I want to see, like, bullshit, I want to see an argument or whatever, you could, I would like to think that one person could say, the claimant could say, well, what is it first that is disturbing to you? Before I give you everything, I want to know first what I'm dealing with. And so then maybe the person could at least say what their, what was so unsavory about it for them. And then you could be like, ah, well, good thing, because my argument doesn't include any of that shit. Here's the proof. And then you can give it to them and they can go, oh, okay, good. Because I had these pre, you know, conceived notions about what you were saying. I have my own burden of disproof that I have to get over. I'm just winging it. Go. <laughs> Even in the way you present them, they are asymmetrical, right? <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I think my biggest problem with your, uh, uh, with that suggestion is that I just wouldn't like to call them, I wouldn't like to label them so similarly because they're so different. I don't want to call the other one a burden of disproof, but it's more like you're just doing a favor to the proponent. You're helping them construct what the proponent would basically be saying, well, what sort of argument would be persuasive to you? If that's the purpose, if that's what I'm trying to do is persuade you, the burden of disproof in your sense sounds like proponent assist the opponent is saying well here's the part that i find the most troubling so were your argument to address that then you would be done and to me that's just very different and therefore i wouldn't want to give it such a symmetrical label for such an asymmetrical thing and that it's not really a burden because you can all they need to do is simply demand an argument, and that move is always a legal move in according to our rule set. So this is kind of an optional aside where the disputant could, were they to choose to, help out the proponent, which is good. I mean, I think I would rather view these things in general, these disputational engagements, as collaborations rather than competitions yeah i'm not a big fan of the whole adv adversarial advocacy style lawyering and debating sure i yeah. think it's better to just look at well we, we as a community want to reach a resolution in the sense of at the end of this communication procedure we all want to have the same judgments and that the best way to get there is not establishing arbitrary advocates for all the alternative positions that we can come up with and presenting, having that person attempt to present the best case and then adjudicating amongst those. I think that's a terrible way to go about it. So what you're suggesting I like in that it is collaborative. I, just, I guess I just don't like the term burden of disproof. I don't think it's a burden and I don't think it's similar enough to the burden of proof that we want to label it that similarly if that makes sense 
Yeah, that sounds fine. Uh, immediately, I'm like, well, what can I do instead of burden? You know, uh, but that doesn't have to happen tonight. <laughs> I just, I just used it, and you were like, we could stretch this to two hours, and I was like, yeah. So, so are you just with me on the two accounts of burden of proof that I laid out? That you also prefer the one where we just lay the burden on anyone who makes a positive claim, period, rather than the burden lies with anyone who is strays from the circle. That there's a that in any tribe or something, there's a status quo. And those things, if you say something that's not taboo in any way that's oh these are already established it's it's very again kind of conservative and establishmentarian i think that if these set of claims need no argument because they are already enshrined in our citadel but these others they require burden so that even someone who just wanted to dispute that's how you could get a burden of disproof, I guess, in your sense. Yeah, I mean, the, one is a clarification, and the other one is, like, ex exaggerated in how biased it is. Uh, the, the clarification is just, you know, wanting an argument for a claim. I agree. I know. Bastard. We're like... We have to disagree well, about trying, something because then we can go back and forth for an hour. I was trying to get to the point where I was going to say, and I guess I'm saying it now, are we two reasonable people? Badum ching Yeah. We are T-O-O -O reasonable. Pat myself on the back. Can you hear this? Back. Um, yeah. You you have this fetish with two hours. It's it's uh, that. <laughs> yeah, these things are going to be out there. You know, so most of the time, most people aren't going to listen to them anyway. But they may run their eyes down the list, and if every number was two something, and then one of them was one something, that's just offensive. That's not. There's no. It's not aesthetically pleasing. So true. Shit, we agreed again. Are there, or should there be, this is too easy for reasonable people. Are there or should there be topics that are off limits for some reason or other? Um, again, since there's only two reasonable people here, it might not go anywhere. I think there are lots of people out there, not too distant, especially from you, yeah, <laughs> given where you... Yeah. reside little beirut who think that tons tons of things should be off limits and okay so the, and this kind of harkens to the burden of proof thing too and it harkens to the goddamn kavanaugh shit should we place a burden on accusers or whatever so first of all should we even is should this be a limit should we not even talk about this oh is there anything that we shouldn't talk about in, you know, including these intense traumatic experiences like assaults, whatever, should those be in some way off limits? 
or should attempting to dispute certain claims be off-limits? As I think someone who might use the phrase, we should believe the women, we should believe the accusers or whatever. I think they might not like the burden of proof version that I was putting forth earlier where anyone who makes claim is the one with the burden. They might think that there are certain claims due to just the nature of the discussion itself that the burden should automatically be shifted to the disputant. No, I didn't get drunk and push anyone into a bedroom, etc. I didn't that uh I don't know. Well, I I have thoughts. Well, thank God. Spew them. There's a sort of a dilemma, you know, with the argumentation theorist raised to the level of the surgeon. Now these people can't make claims because now they have the burden of proof to go through an argument. But I've never flown a plane before. The engines are out. i got to figure out how to land it. That sucks. You know, or, you know, the issue then becomes, well, what, um, are all claims, can you call out all claims for an argument or can claims just settle into dispute? Um, so are there some claims where... It is more reasonable <laughs> to ask for an argument. And are there some claims where it's where it's less reasonable? Um, but then you have reasonable as defined in a circular way as sensitive to arguments. So then is there another word besides reasonable? Because I know you don't like logical. You want to say logical or something, which would be more or less a synonym with reasonable, I suppose. Um, so what's the other word that people can use when they got to make a claim? When they say to their parents, I was raped, and dad goes, what's your argument? You know? <laughs> um, so, you know... So I get it that we've got these surgeon-level argumentation theorists who may be the best people to, along with maybe other people who've figured out how to do this stuff too, to come up with real good arguments for things. But again, now we've got people who are mechanics fixing the plane engine, and there are people who are just on the plane as it flies, you know. But is this the same thing then? When, you know, do claims fit into all, is it always going to fall into this circumstance, I guess, where someone can be like, well, premises and conclusions, Blasey Ford, you know, like, um, I guess that's my, that's what I was thinking when you said that. That's my current position, I guess. The way that I think 
those questions should be answered is that nothing is off limits and that the burden is always on a, someone who makes a claim. There are all sorts of other, again, pragmatic in the broad sense, reasons not to demand that a burden be fulfilled in any moment, one of which would be literally if you're if dad's sitting at home watching the New York Giants and the daughter comes through the door be draggled and says I was raped, it would be extremely impolitic, impolite, cruel. There's many reasons not for the father to say, What's your argument? But that doesn't mean that ideally the person making the claim doesn't in some abstract sense that doesn't need to be fulfilled in most circumstances, have a burden of proof. And then by the time they get to the place where we're at a at some sort of trial slash job interview slash whatever this shit that they're doing in Washington is, then we can talk about, okay, well, now is this the context in which requesting the burden of proof be fulfilled is that acceptable? So the I guess what I'm saying is the burden would still be there, but there are many contextual circumstances in which requesting that the burden be fulfilled is inappropriate. If that answers your question or yeah. makes sense. But then at the trial, are we? Would you then say evidence is a premise? Because isn't that what a lot of these people would ask for? Is show me the evidence, you know that. Yep. So evidence. Uh, evidence for me would be a subtype of premises. There would be evidentiary premises. Okay. Um, and then so then you would construct your argument for the event that took place based on likely some evidentiary premises and maybe some kind of. What am I, circumstantial types of premises? Is that also included, would you say, as a premise? Mm, maybe. I think that um, doesn't circumstantial have a precise term of art definition in the law, and I don't know what that yeah, is. Yeah, I'm sure it does. I don't know what it is either. But in general, you know, I don't know if that's a if this is a legal case, is it? It's like a. It's like you just said. It's a job. Doesn't it's have like to a, be. It could be. It's a, yeah, a dispute but it's like or a whatever. Job, you know. Uh, Any. Yeah, it's just. This is just a Willard style conversation. Any social interaction, communication interaction, where there is opposition. Yeah. But I mean, it's a job interview or whatever, and this is like someone giving you a really bad reference, you know, or something along those lines. I don't mean to make light of it painful event in someone's life but you know like it's kind of in that way it's not a legal matter right there's no real judge mm -hmm. even though the judge is the one who's on trial <laughs> sorry well i guess in the in the thing i'm laying out here everyone who participates is equally a judge the person making a claim the entirety of the audience who's either accepting or disputing the claims. Everyone has got their black robe on and nobody's got gold stripes right, on Right, but it. Uh, um, 
there are different game rules than would be played in a in a legal setting. Well, yeah, but again, I I would see legal setting as a special case. That's a circumstance in which one particular set of discourse norms is in play to resolve a certain set of disputes. So that would be just included under the umbrella of general disputation, resolution, communication procedures. Right, but then uh, in a legal setting, something like circumstantial evidence or whatever may not be included in the same weight class as perhaps in something like a job interview, circumstantial evidence might, right? Where you've been given a bad reference and the people want to know, well, you know, tell me more because we're really considering this guy to hire him or whatever. You know, why is, you know, Mm -hmm. and I would say in this case, I would think that circumstantial might play a, a bigger role because you're, you're not, passing judgment as to whether or not to put the person in jail or whatever you're you're actually passing judgment as to whether or not to include them in your world you know and so i think that way circumstantial evidence might have a greater amount of weight because you're inviting them into you know what i mean you're 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 within your walls you're not putting them in another separate place you know you're not separating them from the outside world you're actually kind of putting them in deeper into the world, you know, or something like that, where they get to have a big say in your world. Anyway, I mean, that's kind of, you know, trivial and as well. I actually have to say something. (laughs) I have to piss like a racehorse. (laughs) (laughs) So perfect place to end. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Not a clunker at all. I agree that is a reasonable reason. <laughs> Thanks. To Which, call the podcast complete. Like my my uh, evidentiary premise is the piss stain on my pants. No. Um, okay, well then, uh, y- y- you ready to call it? Thanks for listening, 2.7. Ooh, we bumped up to 2.7. Come back 7. next week. Well, we've got to be making progress, right? Yeah, I hope so. Make some Don't progress, people. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not unreasonable. And I am a person. Ta. Ta. What do I think of when I need tools or building supplies? I think of ham and eggs. I think of ham and cheese. Ham and eggs. Ham and cheese. Ham, ham and, and eggs. Cheese. Ham and cheese. Ham and eggs. Ham and cheese. Ham and eggs. Ham and cheese. Ham and eggs. Then I think of ham and lumber. Ham and lumber. Ham and lumber. Ham and lumber? Yeah, ham and lumber. Ham and eggs, ham and cheese, and ham and lumber.